Some people say Casablanca or Citizen Kane. I say Jason and the Argonauts is the greatest film ever made. Movies. No more room in hell. TV. Four games. It takes a very steady hand. Conventions. Star Trek action figures also sold separately. Comics. My spiny sense is tingling. Collectibles. Sold $325. Books. I'm a best-selling author. RPGs. Where the Cheetos? Video games. Grab and fields. <laughs> Music. <laughs> Anime. I'm the hero. This is the GW Podcast. Hello and welcome to the G2V Podcast. This is Arnold T. Blumberg, and to my left geographically across the country is Scott Woodard. And in today's episode, we've decided to dedicate our time to the passing of a true legend and giant in the industry, Ray Harryhausen. And we're going to spend some time talking about his legacy and all the wonderful things he did throughout his career that basically shaped our childhood. Oh, no doubt. I mean, there's if I look back at all those movies... It's incredible how those in films inspired not only my love of fantasy, but I think they probably also led to me my getting into the effects industry in the in the first place back in the early nineties. Mm-hmm. And one thing I do remember that we've we've had this conversation before is that you mentioned I never got the chance to meet him, despite the fact that he did many conventions over the years, was someone that you could easily approach. I just never had that opportunity, but you did at one point. So yeah, I was uh, when I first moved out to LA. The first job I had was actually working for a stop motion animator and a legend in his own right, uh, David Allen, who uh, sadly is no longer with us. And I was there for I don't know, it must have only been a few months. And I'll just I'll never forget the day I was sitting at a table or sitting at a desk working on a, a stop motion armature, and I heard the door open behind me, which was a fairly common thing in that particular shop. And, uh, boy, just taking me back, I, I think there was a little alarm beep. Every time you open that door, you'd hear this little beep beep. And, uh, so I just continued working. I hear these footsteps. I hear somebody walk up and I hear, Oh, hey, Scott, I'd like you to meet Ray. And I turned around just expecting, you know, Ray Johnson. And there's, and there's Ray Harryhausen. I mean, and of course, instantly recognizable. Sure. And here I, you know, in one hand, I've got a stop motion armature that I'm, you know, fiddling with. It was probably something for subspecies two or three or 18, whatever. <laughs> and, uh, I turn around and of course I gently put the, the, the armature down on my desk, stand up and just sit and greet him and just say, wow, you know, Mr. Harehouse and I'm, I'm a huge fan. And it's a great honor to meet you. And in his, his usual, you know, sort of calm way, he said, well, for a nice to meet you too, Scott. And <laughs> what are you working on there? And he proceeded to look at the armature I was fiddling with and well, none of this shaking his head. This is, this is just terrible. <laughs> this will never work. <laughs> you should fire him, You're David. You're fooling yourself. Well, <laughs> no, of course. But yeah, that was, that, that was my direct contact. And of course, as it's tragically, you know, now David and Ray are both gone. Yeah. So. Every time I think back on moments like that in my life, I see just sort of me standing in an empty room. You know, it's kind of sad. That's but. sad. But I, it, it, I think it is overstating it sometimes when people look at uh, – one of the things that I've seen, a lot of people saying, oh, with the with the passing of Ray Harryhausen, it's the passing of an entire era of effects. That's certainly not necessarily true. One of the things that I've been doing, like so many fans obviously wind up doing and anything like this happens, there are people that die that feel closer to you than – people that you know personally and he's one of those people that it, it made me incredibly sad that day and i'm thinking this is a chunk of my childhood that's gone away and i you know like you do you start watching the movies again and i'm watching beast from Twenty Thousand fathoms always one of my all-time favorites and valley guanji and clash of the titans and all the sinbad stuff uh and i was watching one of the little extra pieces on that which was a documentary that he did uh, in a conversation with his best friend, lifelong friend, Ray Bradbury. And one of the things Harryhausen said in that piece was how he felt very aware this was done, I think it was 10 years ago, 2003, I think it was a copyright on that, uh, mm-hmm. that he felt very aware of the fact that, as he put it, the snowball rolls on, that he was inspired by Willis O'Brien. That, of course, is anybody that knows Harryhausen. There's no need for us, I think, really to spend too much time on a lot of the historical details because I think we all kind of know that. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, he met Willis O'Brien and O'Brien took him under his wing and then there's Mighty Joe Young and his career begins. And he said now there are generations out there who are grown people that worked, you know, grew up with his movies who are now working in the industry. And he said the snowball rolls on and he said now there's CGI and who knows what will come after that. And he was very aware of his place in the history of it all and that it doesn't really end. So yeah. I think it's, it's, it's wrong in a way to take a look at someone's work like this and then say, well, that's the end of that because it certainly isn't. They leave a legacy behind for one thing and for another thing, they leave so many people that pursue different careers only because they were exposed to his work. And I know it's kind of corny, but the magic that he was able to create out of just simple stop-motion puppetry. It's amazing. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, when you look at him as a pioneer, because you know if you look at the stuff that inspired him, obviously Willis O'Brien and King Kong, and the techniques that he uh, that O'Brien was doing, and then, of course, Ray takes those techniques on, but then develops all his own techniques, and then we get Dynamation and everything else. Mm-hmm. And he really was very much in the mold of a film pioneer, because if you look, jump ahead a few more years, and then you get Tippett, and Murin and people like that, yes. who then sort of take on all those techniques, but then start to develop their own techniques. It's sort of this interesting little living chain of ideas and techniques that just go on and on and on. But they all start from that that little seed way, way, way back. And another thing that occurs to me, too, is one of the things that he often stressed and that, again, we're fans of all this stuff. You almost inevitably – you went into the business. You worked on a lot of the same kind of things. I never did. But in writing about it and wanting to explore the history of it, I came to it from another direction. But one of the things when you're a fan is you almost inevitably become so enamored with wanting to know the story of how it all is created behind the scenes. It doesn't ruin the magic or the uh, amazement of going through those adventures on the screen. It enhances it. Knowing mm-hmm. that someone like Ray Harryhausen was behind the Emir and and making Guanji move, it never made it less enticing to me it made it more so i was fascinated by knowing the man behind it all and it just was part of the charm of the whole thing getting really invested in the real world side of it and seeing how much passion he brought to it and one of the things that i always found fascinating was that he spent his entire career doing it on his own that except for clash of the titans where he needed uh, assistance at that point he did everything on his own it's a very, very lonely and solitary <laughs> job that he did, and yeah. yet he had this unbelievable sort of unswerving dedication that he could do work that would be mind-numbing to some people to spend all that time creating seconds of film. And he had that, not only the steady hand, obviously, but steadiness intellectually too to work on that alone until the job was done, I find just incredible. And it is interesting when when you look at how uh, one of the things that sort of pushed him I, – I don't want to say pushed him because it really was his choice to, to exit in many cases, but sort of to leave, leave the film industry when he did was that there was that sensibility of it was no longer in the hands of individuals mm-hmm. to handle effects like that. It seemed like it was the it, – the, gone was that age and now it was the time for big teams to come in and start handling that kind of stuff and – but uh, you you definitely can look back on those earlier days and say, yeah, it was Ray, <laughs> it, it was Willis, whatever. Right. And uh, it's pretty pretty admirable. But I mean, you still see that in in other branches of effects throughout, say, the seventies, eighties, and even into the nineties. But I think nowadays, even <laughs> a greater extreme. And of course, this could be a topic for a whole other show. But you know, when we were talking about physical effects versus <laughs> computer generated, sure, less and less becoming. I don't know. You can't even associate names with the stuff that's done nowadays, but you can definitely say it's a Ray Harryhausen movie. You know, that's amazing because that is exactly another point I had in my head that is so interesting, which is that many of us – I'm sure we both feel this way and a lot of people listening probably do too when you're a fan. But when you even see all the coverage that happened related to his death, we all refer to them as Ray Harryhausen movies. And that's a weird thing when you think about the fact that – We don't do that with other films. Usually, more often than not, it's the director that's the name that becomes most closely associated. It's J.J. Abrams' Star Trek. It's George Lucas' Star Wars. I'm just thinking like recent and and past examples. But we practically never waver in saying, oh, this is a Ray Harryhausen movie. Right. And although he always took the credit of 
variation of uh, creator of special visual effects or that sort of thing. There was always a director. And the thing yeah. is, very rarely, I'm, I'm sure there are fans out there. I mean, obviously we, we know or, you know, write about it or, or research it or have read about it. And I'm sure plenty of others do too. Know who the directors were for a lot of these movies, but they're not the names that leap to mind immediately when you think of these films. It's his movie. Yep. And he, I mean, he did direct some second unit stuff, if I remember correctly. Yes. Well, obviously he would because he would have to be setting up, you know, shots for effects, but. Well, not only that, but he often talked and in his, he had to be – it's amazing, certainly in, in interviews. He always came across as such an incredibly humble and gracious person. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you don't know necessarily everything about a person's private life. But he wasn't one of those people that had ever came out where somebody said, oh, yeah, but he was horrible to work with. He just always seemed like he, this was an incredibly nice guy. But right. in a lot of interviews, he did often talk – well, on occasion talk about – um, having to deal with directors from time to time, or at least in one or two specific instances, where it was a different kind of setup between him and Charles Schneer, his producing partner, doing a lot of their films. It was a different kind of situation. It was very much their show and not the director's show. And on at least one or two occasions, there were directors who thought, okay, well, now I'm directing this movie, but that's not the kind of movie they're directing because the movie has to be set up properly for Harryhausen to do what he does. Mm-hmm. So the power structure, the the making of the film was approached very differently than normal movie would be. And he had talked on occasion about at least one director, I remember specifically, who apparently wanted to have more creative power, but it was, well, you can't do that because I need a plate that can work for this, <laughs> you know, and he was, so in a way we say they're Ray Harryhausen movies and they really were because he had to be the creative guiding hand on the entire thing for it to all mesh by the end of the film. Don't go away. More of the G2V podcast is coming right up. When I first started out, the monsters were the in thing in the 50s. And uh, you had to have destruction, a great deal of destruction. Disasters and were popular in those days. And I got rather tired of destroying cities. I destroyed New York with the beast from 20,000 Fathoms. I destroyed uh, San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge with a giant octopus. And uh, that gets rather repetitious. Another interesting thing for me is that although I grew up loving everything that Harryhausen did, sought it out aggressively, watched it on television, read all the books, read all the magazines... I never saw a single one of his movies in the theater. Um, mm. Certainly by the time that I would have been aware of it, there weren't that many coming anymore. Uh, I'm thinking of the fact that certainly by 1977, you've got Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger coming out, which is one of my all-time favorites, despite the fact that it may not be one of the best to some people's perspectives. I always love that one. Um, but by that point, when I would have been reaching the age of going to the theater, he was – coming to the end of doing films. And when Clash of the Titans came out, I did not see that in the theater. I saw Raiders hmm. of Stark in the theater, uh, but I didn't see Clash. So I never got to see any of his movies on a big screen. I mean, obviously there are opportunities for that these days with revivals and stuff, but I have never had that chance, no. Did you? Right. I did, yeah. I actually, I know I know for a fact I saw Eye of the Tiger, um, which, you, what, that was 77, Se- did you say? 77, yeah. So yeah, same year as Star Wars. So I know I know I must have seen that, and I can guarantee I saw Clash of the Titans because I had such fond memories of of that film and just being completely blown away by. I think my highlight in that movie was uh, Pegasus, but I remember that always just stood out as I was growing up. And I think when I discovered they had you know Pegasus or Pegasi, whatever, <laughs> in uh, in Dungeons and Dragons, oh. and I was at the the perfect age, and re- and every time I would envision them in my head, it was the way they were that Ray realized them. And but uh, yeah, I saw those two in the theater. I remember. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned I the Tiger came out the same year. Star Wars and Clash. There was this weird thing used to happen to us when we put on movies on cable all the time, where euphemistically in our family now we always refer to it as the trash masher scene. For anything. <laughs> Anybody that knows Star Wars knows that part that I'm talking about. But it seemed for a while, whenever we would put Star Wars on, we'd find it on television, no matter what. 
inevitably we were going to turn it on during the Trash Masher scene. <laughs> I don't know how the channel knew, but it knew. And the Trash Masher scene for us in Clash of the Titans is the taming of Pegasus. Oh, yeah. And by the lakeside. I don't know why that happened, <laughs> but it's always going to be that scene when I suddenly find Clash of the Titans on television. And it was just one of those experiences of just seeing – I must have seen that over and over and over again. Beautiful film, amazing musical score to go with mm-hmm. it. Um, and in many cases, in a certain sense, it's as beautiful a finale for him as you could hope for. In that the end of the film almost feels like a farewell. Oh, and, yeah. and yet, although you'd, you'd argue as a fan, oh, but there were so many more years he could have done something. It's quite a roundup of all of his techniques. Some of the most incredible character work he ever did. Certainly the Medusa scene is a mm. tour de force with lighting effects and astonishing work that you just cannot believe he's achieving. And if you have to end on something, a movie that celebrates all this great mythology and puts Florence Olivier in a Zeus <laughs> at the same time, why not? Um, yeah, exactly. It's just a perfect ending. And then, the, of course, the remake of Clash of the Titans comes around and basically, you know, pisses on it and throws Bubo into a pile of junk. Yeah, I, I, I desperately, <laughs> desperately hate that film for that reason, if for no other, because it's one of those things. And I, I guess we shouldn't get into this too much. Because yeah, right. <laughs> well, well, it's about celebrating Ray Harryhausen's work and not talking about people that can't get it. But, <laughs> That's true. But but the weird thing about that is it's that insane idea that happens so often with remakes and with looking back on the past of crapping all over the memories of people's childhood by trying to suggest that we all agree that it was terrible when it never was. I could mm-hmm. still watch Clash of the Titans today. I think Bubo is cute, a great addition to the story. Uh a, a nice dynamic character that has incredible cute little character and heroic character moments. And quite frankly, if you really watch the movie, and I'm sure I hopefully people agree, Bubo's actually the hero of the film. Perseus can't get anything right. If it weren't for Bubo at the end, <laughs> it would all fall apart. He's the hero at the end of the movie. And then they make the remake. It's like, nah, you don't want to take that. Because <laughs> yes, because we all thought Bubo was terrible and stupid and embarrassing. No, we actually didn't. We thought he was cool. So, well, I think one of the big problems now is that a lot of these young filmmakers have sort of grown up in a digital age. You know, they have no concept of the the magic that we saw in movies prior to, say, Jurassic Park, which is when a lot of these guys jumped on board. I mean, how how does Jurassic Park right now? Aren't they just celebrating their 20th anniversary? Is that right? Quite a bit older than it has any right to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's shocking when That's you think right. back on that. But, you know, they've only seen a very, very slow progression of digital effects. And if you look at Jurassic Park right now, if you go out there and see the 3D version that's in theaters still, Mm -hmm. that stuff looks great. It still holds up. So the technology was sort of just thrown at them at at that, that point in cinema history. And as I say, just a slow progression. Yeah, stuff now that comes out is a little bit better or it's a little more, bit more detailed. But again, no comprehension of us seeing Bubo on the screen or Pegasus on the screen in Clash of the Titans in 1981 and thinking, wow, how did they do that? What great magic. How, what an awesome character. So I think that's why they, they just toss Bubo aside in Clash of the Titans because they have no idea of how important that character was. Well, and I would add to that. I agree with you, mm-hmm. but I also feel that the problem, and of course, in, in, in doing this tribute to Harry Housen, we also don't want to spend too much time running down people that come <laughs> after. Um, because obviously, there's 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 good things to CGI effects too, and there's good sure. good things to younger filmmakers coming along and doing amazing work too. I think you're right, but I also think another thing that's also at work is, is and it's not entirely their fault, but a sort of cultural misconception going on that they're buying into which is that somehow in order to look cool and new, they need to show disdain for the previous thing because they don't think the young audience that they're aiming at will go along with them unless there's some sort of ironic joke or slight to the past because obviously the old thing can't be cool. The new thing is cool. So they mm-hmm. throw in these gags, which maybe they themselves don't even 100% agree with. I can't imagine that some of the people that worked on that Clash of the Titans remake, for all the flaws that we could certainly spend time talking about and that we don't like that in comparison to the original, 
probably loved the original a great deal. It, some of them must have. There must be somebody there who worked on Medusa <laughs> who was like, you know, I'm following in the footsteps of someone who did this amazing Medusa. And yet that boobo gag is in there, which feels so horribly misjudged and insulting. And I think it's also about trying to ingratiate with an audience that doesn't have a conception of history or that maybe they just think doesn't have a conception of history. And, right. and it makes it cool. It's like, don't worry, we're not, we're not going to try to sell you your grandfather's or your father's Clash of the Titans. But here's Kubo <laughs> to show you that we're not going to do that. And in essence, what I'm saying is maybe nobody's to blame and everybody's mistaken by doing right. that. I mean, I know for a fact that there were, I think there were three screenwriters on, on the remake. And two of them are closer to our age. I think one was born in, I think, in 73. One maybe was born in 71. So they're closer to our age. And then there was a third writer. And I think he wrote, may have written the uh, Pacific Rim. Oh. And, okay. I, and he was born in the 80s. And I may have actually been born in 83. Hmm. So, I, and as I say, I, when I, I know, I did read about these guys, I think, when the original movie, or when the, the remake came out, and two of them were were speaking with great reverence about the original and saying how they really wanted to bring stuff into the new one that was that was important to the to the fans of the original film but also that was of course iconic with the Clash of the Titans brand so to speak. Mm-hmm. But yeah, then there's this this young screenwriter who may have been a late addition. Maybe the other two guys wrote something that that maybe maybe Bubo was featured more heavily in the original draft yeah. as an homage. And then this guy came in and said, "Oh, I hate that stupid little robot." But Yeah. But another thing, I mean, we can kind of stray from that. I think we, we've sort of bashed the remake enough. Yeah, um, yeah. It's more important to talk about Harryhausen himself, though, and, and the wonderful things he did. I know the one thing we were thinking of doing also was trying to go back and looking at some of his work chronologically, too. One of the things interesting about Harryhausen's career is how it strides across not only several genres, but several eras of filmmaking. There are people, I mean, like we grew up with all of these movies, and I love every one of them. There are some that I might watch over and over and over again, more so than others. But some people hear Harryhausen's name and they think instantly, Sinbad. And yet some people hear Harryhausen, they think instantly, ah, 50s you know, giant monster attack movies like Beast from 20,000 Fathoms or Came from Beneath the Sea. He was involved in all these things. He went from that era of the 50s giant monster stuff, to an era that crossed over into color work and then more fantasy and sword and sorcery and adventure. And as I think we've already said, Clash of the Titans provided this amazing sort of summation of his entire career by including both, if you think about it, a giant monster attack, certainly more than a few times in that movie and certainly by the end of it, and yet couched in the fantasy and sword and sorcery genres that he had become so much more connected with in the later part of his career, but there's quite a spread there in terms of the kinds of movies he did that are so important to whole chapters of the history of science fiction and fantasy filmmaking. And of course he started, I mean, he did plenty of stuff before this. He did his Mother Goose stories. uh, He did his uh, fairy tale work. But in terms of really where the starting point is, theatrically, you could argue we could really start looking at Mighty Joe Young. And It's also one of the movies where I can bring up one of the points I really wanted to stress, which is how much we talk about Harryhausen as a special effects genius and as just a man without peer in terms of creating the appearance of life with inanimate objects. And yet one of the things that I feel doesn't get stressed enough is that he was an actor, that every character you see on screen that he created, he's performing. He's creating a performance, and if you actually have grown up with his movies and watched them over and over, you see the same physical tics. You see the same behaviors come through these characters like you would with an actor that you love and see return over and over again in different roles because you hire that person to be that person. Like you would hire Jack Nicholson to always be Jack Nicholson, Harryhausen's characters very often have a lot of similar behavior. Everybody will know what I mean when I say there's the shoulder roll. Yep. I was I mean, just going to comment on that. I mean, everybody knows that. And and there's the little raising up of the arm in front that almost looks like a cat move that he does with everything from the Eohippus and 
Valley Guanji to the beast when he pauses on the street. He lifts up that one arm. There are so many things he does that are performance. It's Ray Harryhausen on the screen every time one of these characters appears. Today we see so many things going on in the world of acting and motion capture and modern effects and people like Andy Serkis who have become so prominent for doing extraordinary performances while never actually physically appearing on screen because he's embodying roles from Gollum to Caesar in the Planet of the Apes. Well, the, the first one he did, and then there's, they're already doing the sequel. And even talk about, oh, this is a man that should get an Academy Award nomination. Well, Ray Harryhausen did get a special Academy Award for a lot of his work, but it wasn't necessarily couched in terms of it being an acting trophy. And my argument would be that he was just as entitled to being awarded for his acting and for spending all those years putting himself in every character that he did. One of the things that I always look at, it's the little things. The fact that when the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms steps on a car, he doesn't just step on it. He steps on it, stops for a second, and then like bats it away with his foot. Right. Like, <laughs> eh, done with that. <laughs> and it's like there's no need for that. There's no need for that at all, but it's a character moment. One of my right. favorite other little moments is the Emir. When the Emir is first born in 20 million miles to Earth, and uh, the old scientist and the, the, the girl, they're coming into the trailer where the the little you know gelatin egg was, and he's just come out, and it's dark, and they put the light on, and he shies away, and he wipes his eyes, and he just looks so cute. Yeah. There's so much animal behavior in a lot of his stuff, which makes sense, too, because what else could you observe but, you know, your own animals or animals around and apply that. But it just makes these characters feel real. And often, of course, also you get emotionally involved in them. And as he himself used to say, his characters often end very badly, certainly as big <laughs> monsters. But you care about them because they're very often creatures that don't know that what they're doing is bad or that aren't supposed to be where they are. The Emir is a horribly tragic character. Yeah, absolutely. And and so is Guanji. So yeah. they they're all terrible beasts too. They're they're all in these horrible so, and and really when you think about it, where does it all come from? He and Ray Bradbury sitting in a theater watching King Kong. Yep. It's all King Kong really over and over again in many ways. The GW podcast will be right back. wandered into Grumman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood Boulevard uh, some years ago in 1933 when I was a uh, tender age of 13 and I haven't been the same since. I was just um, uh, found that this picture haunted me so that I had to find out how it was done. It's kind of interesting too uh, to to carry on from that, where he then goes, you know, obviously a great admirer of Willis O'Brien's work. Willis O'Brien then brings him on to work on Mighty Joe Young, mm -hmm. and then jump ahead many many more years, and then you have sort of young stop motion animators stepping in to actually help Ray complete Tortoise and the Hare, right? Which is kind of an interesting little, you know, handing the torch along. Absolutely. Uh, to, to these to these new artists who are who are you know masters of the, of their techniques, which of course I'll toot my own horn here a little bit, but you know I was the uh, I was the puppet coordinator on uh, Paranorman uh, for Leica, and uh, and that's stop motion. You know if it wasn't for Ray, a movie like that would really would never certainly would not get made nowadays. Was there a sense in the making of Paranorman, either you personally or the people that were on the crew? of being a part I mean I can't imagine there wasn't at least one moment or two in the making of that film where there wasn't some association to Harryhausen maybe even deliberate attempts to to pay homage or was it just something that was in your mind while you were working on it I would say that um I would I would say that there are certainly a lot of animators who work for the company who are great admirers of Ray's and they pr very likely put stuff in 
that were direct homages. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may be stuff that you know you would have to really look closely to see, but I can imagine there's got to be stuff that's in there that is that is a, a personal homage to his work. But I do know that in the shop, uh, the fabrication department, there were at least I know of at least two guys who had raised books on on their shelves oh. alongside their tool books and you know uh, machining books and things like that. Sure. So particularly in the armature department. Um, so I know they had uh, was it animated life. Is that one of the ones he did? I um, think some of yeah some so some of the big ones, but then also I, I remember seeing some some smaller ones too. And but yeah, great great reverence for for um, Harryhausen's work there. It's also interesting too. We we actually talked off mic at one point about the respect we both have for model work and how there's still some things that CGI can't accomplish in terms of realism. And one of the things that's also interesting that I find looking back at a lot of Harryhausen's work is how we remember a lot of his creatures, his sort of his monsters, his his animals. And it is also interesting, by the way, that the the later you go in his career, when you get to things like Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger and uh, and Guanji, where you see him starting to do more almost real-looking animals with very little fantasy trappings about them. His technique is so good that he can go ahead and say, you know what, we don't even need the real elephant. I'll just do an <laughs> elephant. And and you don't really think about it. I know there are probably young people that would come to the movie and go, well, you know, the, the whole thing looks fake. But once you've bought into that style from the moment the movie begins, then the elephant shows up and it's like, okay, well, all the animals are going to look like that then. And, right. it, and it meshes with the real horses and everything else. It's like, well, it's it's he was amazing. Obviously, an amazing observer of animal behavior mm-hmm. to the sense that by the time he got to that point, he could replicate it with so much realism that you could buy him doing an actual real looking animal. Even in Clash of the Titans, like the giant vulture, there's, there are certain creatures where he didn't really embroider them too much with anything odd. They just mm-hmm. look like big animals. And yet another thing he often did that was fascinating was how much work he did with inanimate objects. And one of the things that, that I certainly always consider as one of his masterpieces is some of the work he did in things like Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Oh, God, yeah. Where he crumbled entire buildings by hand, one piece at a time. <laughs> when you watch, and, and yeah, sure, when you watch some of them, you can almost see the invisible hand of the animator behind it as each individual crumbled piece of supposedly stone on an individual wire is falling maybe slightly so, slower than physics would suggest. But who cares at that point? <laughs> the fact is it's astonishing looking how right. he actually did that. The the flying saucers in Earth versus the flying saucers are creepy looking. That fast motion happening under them. Mm-hmm. When he even said he tried to figure out, well, how can I make them look dynamic in some way? And he came up with that idea of the slotted surface that could demonstrate the fact that it was rotating fast right. and get that motion going. And that motion is creepy looking, and that's an inanimate thing. He isn't even creating an animal or a creature, and yet he's giving it personality. I still think the rocket's sitting... Uh, sinking into the water and 20 million miles to Earth always gives me the chills. I don't like the hmm. look of that. <laughs> it makes me feel uncomfortable when we see the scene at the beginning of the movie where they're rowing and that weird rocket is sticking out of the Earth. I still feel the way I do I did when I saw that as a kid, which is that on one level it's almost like you can you can read in your mind that that rocket clearly is not really there. Mm-hmm. that it's not existing with the actors, and yet at the same time it looks so convincing and so big in comparison to them that it's just unsettling. Right. And I can't imagine you accomplishing that with a CGI rocket. The that's f- true. And, and that's another thing. I just think that we we focus on his animals and creatures and sometimes forget that he did amazing stuff with buildings, with inanimate objects. Just incredible work. Yeah. Well, and it's funny, too, going back to your animal thing, I don't know if it was, this was just me, but when I was a kid and I would watch his movies, when a regular animal would come up that I knew he, he had animated or was animated, rather, um, just from my perspective as a as a boy, I was usually disappointed by those because. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I I wanted to see the monsters, oh, and sure. I accept 
and it was funny because I would accept the fact that the monster would be on the screen that, you know, Talos or whatever, and would be wandering around and creaking and groaning and have that, you know, wonderful uh, animated quality to him. But as soon as the animal came on, I don't know if it, what it was, but I, I always knew that it was, that it had been animated. Mm-hmm. And then part of me thought, well, why couldn't they just use a real elephant? <laughs> um, that's, I don't like that. Don't waste so never- Ray's time with that. <laughs> So yeah, I never, I never, I, I always kind of turned away when the when the animals would come up. That's interesting. Yeah, isn't that weird? But um, Mysterious yeah, Islands, but, another example of that too, with a lot of like giant animals. Yeah, but that movie's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that one I can accept because <laughs> you knew those were supposed to be like crazy giant animals. Yeah, but oftentimes it would be like you'd sort of sort of think, well, why didn't they just use a regular animal for that one? But I mean, you couldn't really get away with animating a, re- a full size crab. In the, <laughs> right for mysterious island, I don't think it would work very well. One of his one of his charming stories that always like because yeah, like a lot of these kind of guys too. I mean, my God, the man lived into his nineties, and how many times had he been interviewed and told the same stories over and over again? Wonderful stories about the making of all these movies, but that was one of those ones where they talk about them getting the real crabs and him hollowing out the crab and building the armature for it and and uh and he said but you know but they didn't go to waste because everybody had like a very wonderful dinner that yeah. you know and um grain of salt with that story i'm sure i but. think so yeah but it's, it makes for <laughs> a nice a story one. yeah um one other thing i thought was kind of touching was when i was watching uh the 90th birthday uh bafta special that they did i just just happened to watch that a couple of days ago and of course ray bradbury had a very nice touching discussion about their their friendship and talked about how you know he was going to be the writer and ray was going to do make the monsters and the dinosaurs and that someday they would work together mm-hmm. and i mean as far as i can tell beast from Twenty Thousand fathoms was basically the only time they effectively worked together that was it yeah. right and then that was just being based on the foghorn right a short story which wasn't even his decision necessarily was it or did he push for that how did that happen no it, well he tells the, the thing is depending on where you look bradbury tells one version of the story some other sources tell a slightly different version. Not to go too off on a tangent, but one of the interesting things about Bradbury's career is that several occasions in Bradbury's career, he either caught someone or got involved with someone that was more or less taking his work and then nicely worked it out <laughs> business-wise <laughs> to not have them stealing. Um, this happened to some extent with EC Comics, where they adapted a lot of Ray Bradbury uh, short stories in EC Comics after making like a licensing deal with him to do that. Uh, and in Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms, there was one of the versions of the story I had always read growing up is a little different than the one that I've now heard Bradbury himself tell in more recent years before before he died, obviously. But I think we could probably call into question exactly what the the order of events is the version i had most often heard was they had developed a script for the film and had called him in to read the script and his reaction was you know it's funny but the script i just read sounds exactly like my short story in the saturday evening post the foghorn at which point the producers go damn well i guess we're gonna have to pay you something then (laughs) Um, but but to their credit they did call him in so the question is one version that he tells seems to suggest that they knew that going in and they were, I don't know, what, testing him? I don't know, like, will he notice? But, um, but yeah, that did wind up being their only collaboration. That happened because they brought him and he read it. He said, that's the Foghorn. They said, yeah, they paid for the Foghorn, which really, when you watch The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, the Foghorn part of it is obviously it's only one. Minimal. Yeah, yeah, it really amounts to the visual, which is beautiful. Yeah. Um, but no resemblance to the story that's told in in his story, um, and then of course it led to the ability for them to actually collaborate in the sense that they were both involved in the making of that movie. And of course, that movie is huge, far far huger. In fact, I, I guess I'd argue the Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms, which is one of my all time favorite movies, anyway probably in the top ten of movies that I will be watching over and over again for the rest of my life and could watch more than one time in a night, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms is one of them. Hmm. And I might be able to argue effectively that out of every single movie Harryhausen ever worked on, the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms is probably the most important movie he ever did for the simple reason that it's the movie that directly inspired Godzilla. 
Oh, wow. So it has a huge, huge knock-on effect in pop culture. In 1952, they re-released King Kong during a time when no one thought that a movie made 20 years earlier, more or less, close to 20 years, could possibly perform that well, and yet they did that. And the 1952 re-release of King Kong took apparently them partly by surprise in how well it did that an audience in the 50s was equally willing to buy into this movie from the 30s. And that led to The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms a year later, which was being done as an independent, very low-budget film. But Warner Brothers bought it and figured they could do something with this. Hey, giant monster movie, the remake uh, – not the remake, the re-release of King Kong did well. Maybe we can do something with this. They bought it, very low-budget film, very low cost to them. Beast from 20,000 Fathoms made millions it was an extraordinary hit at a time where those kind of movies would not make that kind of money necessarily. And then Toho was like, we want one of those. <laughs> and Godzilla came about a year later. And you can see the thread that goes straight from King Kong through Beast to Godzilla and continues on to this day with the 1998 Godzilla, which is a whole other show, but I've always said is really a visual and pretty much beat-for-beat story remake of Beast from 20,000 Fathoms with just the name Godzilla tacked onto it, which in a way is sort of appropriate since Beast was America's Godzilla. Mm -hmm. And now we've got a new Godzilla coming, and of course that series itself became a huge multi-film institution of its own. So I think Beast is probably it may very well be the most influential and most important thing he ever did. And it's interesting that it's the one that he collaborated on to some extent with his closest friends. So maybe that's there's something like additionally poetic about that. Impossible, unbelievable, fantastic. But I tell you, it could happen. It could happen. It could happen. It could happen. Yes, it could happen. For various authorities believe that buried somewhere under the polar ice cap, in a state of suspended animation, are the awesome creatures, the leviathans that roamed the earth at the dawn of time. And under certain conditions, a nuclear explosion could free one from his icy tomb. Then, guided by instinct, the beast would come back, back to the caverns of the deepest Atlantic where it was spawned. An armored giant wreaking his prehistoric fury on modern man and his puny machines. Cities would be terrorized by the cruel intruder from the past. Populations crazed and panicked with fear by its destructive force. Granite and steel would crumble. Soldiers and their weapons would be powerless before the onslaught of the beast. The beast. The beast. The beast from 20,000 fathoms. This is the G2B Podcast. Um, little side note, um, this was just kind of a interesting little uh, story. When I was working on the movie Cabin Boy, I don't know if you remember that film. Would you like to buy a monkey? <laughs> Would you like to buy a monkey? Um, with, yeah, Chris Elliott's movie. And, of course, that had a couple of little homages of its own. Yeah. Um, uh, and there was, of course, Callie played by... Or well, it was Kali, of course, but it, I think they pronounced it Kali <laughs> in Cabin Boy, played by Anne Magnuson. Yeah, sure, I remember that. And uh, and I puppeteered one of her hands, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> and uh, anyway, uh, so we're all sitting in our room. Uh, we had just made her up and put her into her full makeup and her costume and everything, and she stepped out. And then we all sat down because we knew we had a long break, and we put on the laser disc of Jason and the Argonauts. Ah, uh. and. It was hilarious because we're sitting there watching and it's just beginning and Anne comes walking back in and she says, oh, my God, you're going to watch Jason and the Argonauts? She says, "I'm." it's my favorite movie of all time. <laughs> and she plops down in full makeup and costume amongst us and <laughs> proceeds to watch the entirety of Jason and the Argonauts before we had to get her out on set. So that's a kind of a fun little memory I have. That's awesome. Linked to a Harryhausen film. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Something that everybody can appreciate. These, well, I mean, these are just, it's, you know, sometimes I think you could too easily fall into hyperbole about some of these people, but he he made magic. He really made magic. Yeah, absolutely. His movies I mean, are magical pieces of work. I mean, there's absolute honesty in that little clip I played at the top where Tom Hanks, you know, makes his comment about Jason and the Argonauts. Mm-hmm. You know, 
So, but yeah, it's re- it's really magical movies, and you can't really say that about a lot of movies now. And Ray definitely had his had something about what he did was uh, you know it was it was pretty special. Well, one thing we didn't mention yet, uh, but that obviously we both know, is that for some time now we've been collaborating on a project that deals quite directly with a large portion of, well, certainly a significant portion of Harryhausen's work and delves into some of the films, particularly the Sinbad movies, um, but several of the others too, including Clash, Jason and the Argonauts. And in exploring that, naturally doing all the research, which in essence we've both kind of been doing all our lives anyway, one of the things that's also a side note that's kind of interesting is all of the projects that he wanted to do that never happened. And there are a lot of books out there today, some beautiful books, uh, that collect a lot of his sketches and his uh, early illustrations, his development work on pieces that never happened, on movie projects that never took place, all the missed opportunities, basically. That Yeah, I would have loved to have seen his War of the Worlds. Yeah, and, and I think there was I, – I, I'm doing this off the top of my head now. I mean, obviously, we have – because of that work, we have a lot of these things down, so – um, but there was uh, something about uh, gargoyles in London, something like that. There are there are all these amazing ideas that for every idea that he had that reached the screen, there are also things that we'll never see that were things he was either developing or working on that just never actually saw the light of day. And he very often cannibalized some of those ideas um, so that some of the creatures that we did see turn up might have been something that he was thinking of for another film that then wound up being developed into something that he did use. And there are also those nice little connections, if you're a fan, like the Emir's face obviously is very much the influence for the development of the face of the Kraken by the time you get to Clash of the Titans. There are certain aesthetic choices he made again and again that you can see developing over the course of his career too. So we may have missed out on a few things, but he sure did leave an enormous body of work for us to return to and appreciate over and over again. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, I was just looking through, um, I think this might be his his full obituary. I'm not 100% sure, but there's some great great little quotes in here I'd love to share uh, If for people who maybe not have read this, which is probably quite a few of you. Um, there's one quote from George Lucas, hmm. which I thought was nice, especially because it touches on what we were talking about earlier. But uh, he says, Lucas says, I had seen some other fa- fantasy films before, but none of them had the kind of awe that Ray Harryhausen's movies had. And, of course, we've been talking about how these are Ray Harryhausen's movies. Sure. He doesn't talk about the directors. He doesn't. Talk, yeah, it's just they're, they're Ray's movies. And it's a great, great comment. Also, in regards to Bradbury and, and Harryhausen's relationship, I love this comment from um, Ray Bradbury, who said he and I made a pact to grow old, but never grow up. Oh, yeah. To, to keep the pterodactyl and the tyrannosaurus forever in our hearts. Very sweet comment. Oh yeah. And uh and then this I saw this one and this is just this is brilliant. This is actually a quote from Ray from nineteen ninety eight. And I just absolutely love this. He says, I find it rather amusing to sit through the on screen credits today, seeing the names of two hundred people doing what I once did by myself. <laughs> <laughs> you go, Ray. How you know awesome what, yeah, is that? you know what's interesting is that's almost borderline bitter, which for a man like him who <laughs> seems so humble and gracious, that almost sounds like a like a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, I did it on my own. But you he's right. I mean, he's computers. absolutely right. 400,000 computer jockeys listed at the end of every summer blockbuster. Meanwhile, one man standing at a table with a bunch of models did it all on his own. And I know it's, you know, it's that generational kind of thing. We certainly agree. But I think I'd take something that one man did any day over a lot of the things that all those guys are doing. And I don't – I'm not taking away any of their job opportunities or any of the fact that they're also trying to do the best work they can do. But – this this was a, a one-man movie factory. It's just absolutely impossible to beat. Well, and I mean, I think we touched on this earlier, but yeah, it is, you can you can look at Ray's work and you can see his his movements, his performance, as you were saying, uh, in a in a particular monster or creature. And when you see a list of 150 names on the screen. Uh, of a of a movie that maybe had several monsters in it, and that one group of 150 names are attributed to one creature. That's right. 
in the film. That's a great point. And how did this happen? And how is this cheaper? And that's a whole other topic. But yeah, I just it just it's pretty amazing. Well, and not only that, but what I thought you were heading toward. But not only that, but think about what that means in terms of the performance of the character. How do you get a singular performance out of a creature, out of an animal, out of a living thing, if 400 people are working on it independently as opposed to one? Now, granted, there are a lot of movies we love where exactly that kind of thing happens. I mean, look at the work that's done in the Lord of the Rings movies, which is astonishing, beautiful work, and a lot of CGI characters in that that have personality. And I'm sure plenty of people working on that who are also standing on the shoulders of Ray Harryhausen and thinking, you know, I'm going to make this troll look... Some of those trolls sometimes have a bit of the shoulder roll going, and you know, <laughs> it's clear it's there. But I would also say that the fewer people you have on an individual character, the more likely you are to be able to infuse it with the kind of life that can make it seem effective and real. In the mm-hmm. same way, the classic animation is 2D animation. You'd often have like, okay, you assign an animator to a particular character. That way, it creates a personality. They are also performing on paper in the same way that Harryhausen performed through his puppetry, through his animation. And uh, all these people working on this stuff, that's in a way they're setting themselves a bigger challenge to try to convince us that these things are real living beings. And if you have any knowledge of of certain artists in the past on films who would, say, build models, oftentimes you could look at a say, a spaceship design in, in Star Wars or Close Encounters or something, and you could still... Here, going back to an inanimate objects, mm-hmm. uh, you could still look at that and say, "I know the art- artists behind that design, you know that construction." Right. And that I know that this particular model maker loves to use that type of strut, or you know something along those mm-hmm. lines. But you know, gone—that's gone now. That that type of thing is definitely gone now. And in fact, Harryhausen uh, himself said that one of the things is kind of sad, although by today, not, not a lot of these things would have survived very well anyway with the kind of materials that were involved, but he himself has often said in many interviews that he cannibalized pieces and would reuse too. The beast from 20,000 fathoms turned up years later and other, other bits get reused over and over again. He would use armatures again so that, you know, technically you're watching one creature in one movie and not even realizing you're looking at the one that you loved from a previous movie. (laughs) Um, So there was a lot of stuff he didn't keep, but then again, how much of that would survive today based on you know, latex and rubber and all the kind of things right. they were using at the time. But he was doing that too, even even not just his performance being consistent in the sense of it being the one man making all these things, but he would actually also reuse a lot of his materials too. Right. Well, it's interesting because that, that type of, that aspect of the technique still exists. Uh, at, even at Leica, when we were on Paranorman, uh, they were pulling Coraline armatures out and and repurposing them a lot of the time. That's cool. Yeah, so there's almost that, that that's still alive to some extent. I mean, I know I would say 95% mm-hmm. of the armatures that appeared in that movie were brand new, but there were a few things every once in a while, a background character or something, and they would actually go and grab some old old armature and repurpose it, mm-hmm. probably in much the way that same way that Ray used to do. Sure. Certainly when I was working for David Allen, that was a far more regular occurrence because we had very little money to work on on those movies with. So mm-hmm. if we were doing, you know, a puppet master movie and then immediately transitioning over to a subspecies film, uh, yeah, we were totally using bits and pieces and <laughs> oftentimes hardware. We'd pull the screws out of that guy. We need some extra screws. So I can totally imagine Ray doing exactly that same thing. One of the things that does come up in some of the coverage of this, not a lot, because frankly, when you read a lot of the coverage about Ray Harryhausen's death, a lot of it is being handled by and coming from a lot of the same people like us, people that have a lot of reverence for what he did and maybe personally have a lot of emotional investment in their childhood being shaped by this man. But one of the things I did see come up in a couple of pieces was, well, with the passing of Ray Harryhausen, it's the final nail in the coffin for practical effects and end of an era. Uh, I saw one that actually used that phrase, which I thought seemed pretty kind of ill-judged and and too soon to use that metaphor in that sense. Like, do you really need to say it that way now? And and I actually saw that. I thought, well, naturally, one of the things you could say is that that happened when he stopped working, which obviously mm-hmm. was a long time ago. He chose to get to get out, to stop, to retire 
all the way back with Clash of the Titans in 81. He saw the writing on the wall and the shift in uh, movie culture and, and a business that he felt was growing away from him, and he stopped. And yet I have seen a couple articles like that one I just mentioned that said, well, with Ray Harryhausen dying now, despite the fact he hadn't been working for decades, <laughs> this is definitely the end of practical effects, which is silly right on the face of it, since here you are talking about the work that you and all those people did on Paranorman. Mm-hmm. And so many, it seems almost like there's a little bit of a renaissance going on right now in practical effects. Certainly movies like, and a lot of this stuff would be things we could talk about in other shows, but certainly things like the recent uh, Thing remake slash sequel, which replaced a lot of the practical effects that had been completed for the film with CGI, got a lot of negative feedback for that. And the very people involved in that, that is, uh, what's the name of their company? Is it Amalgamated oh, Dynamics? Yeah, Amalgamated Design. Um, yeah, Tom and Alec. Uh, Tom Woodruff and Alec Gillis. Who, Alec, Gillis yeah. Alec Gillis, who have been involved in tons of great science fiction horror movies over the years, are currently, as we speak, doing a Kickstarter for a new project they're trying to do in which they're pledging to do 100% practical effects. And I think that we might actually be seeing, interestingly enough, that with the passing of Ray Harryhausen, at this very moment, as he leaves, it seems to be a rebirth for some of this kind of work right now. Right. We might be entering a new era of that because maybe people are noticing that, look, there are some things that CGI just can't accomplish. Well, it's funny, too, because uh, there was a a follow-up post I think it was right around the time of Ray's passing uh, in regards to the ADI film. And they actually said that they were going to try to do some stop motion. Oh, right. Uh, right. In, in the film as well. So in a weird way, I think it was almost a subtle way of doing an homage, uh, which is, that's pretty great. Um, but it's funny that you were talking about that sort of Renaissance thing, because I was thinking to myself, you know, if this Kickstarter works and if Tom and Alec are actually able to do this, this physical effects uh, film and it's even modestly successful even if it's a you know airs on sci-fi channel kind of a thing or it sells well on dvd sure what's to say we won't see some more of that kind of stuff happen and if they can do it for a reasonable cost and people like what they see sure and what's to say somebody can come along and say you know what would be really cool if we did a movie entirely in the style of ray harryhausen and did good old-fashioned stop-motion animation where every creature in the movie is a stop-motion model Mm-hmm. And do that, which is not quite what they're doing because they're going to do, you know, animatronic effects and yeah. some of the monster work that they do. But if someone said, "Hey, you know what might work is a stop motion film in the style of these movies," may it may be that places like Kickstarter are the place where that can happen. Mm-hmm. And surely, since you're going for and a dedicated and invested in a specific fan base with those kind of projects. It's far likelier than a big movie studio deciding to throw money at something that they're never going to think is is going to work for a modern audience, which they might be right in terms of the mm-hmm. multiplex. But I'm, I mean, who's to say that uh, one of those projects that Ray never got completely yeah. off the ground yeah. doesn't get set up as a Kickstarter project? That's right. You know, they may have concept designs, they may have they you know, pup creatures, I mean, they may even have scripts for all we know. And that all it would take was just, you know, a little infusion of cash and they might be able to do something like that. Sure. And, you know, if you combine, uh, you know, classic techniques, stop motion techniques with C- with uh, some CG for visual effects for smoothing things out or, or, you know, compositing live actors into a shot a little bit better and smoother, you could still do a pretty impressive movie yeah. uh, with a really neat animation style. That's a good I think point. you're right. I think I think we might actually see some more of the stuff like that. I mean, maybe I don't know. Maybe we're <laughs> maybe we have <laughs> it's a pipe dream or something. But um, it's certainly encouraging, yeah. and I really do hope that the the ADI thing gets off the ground. But that's a again another topic. But yeah, I just again I I guess it's with his association with Bradbury. It seems that so often when I think of style, it's cheesy. I know, but when I think of Harryhausen and some of this stuff, it's hard not to think poetically. I also think about like the Olivier's final speech in Clash of the Titans. And there's there's a poetry to a lot of the stuff he did. And Bradbury was a very poetic writer, so I always associate the two naturally. And mm-hmm. there seems something kind of poetic about the idea that 
just as he leaves the earth. <laughs> I know it's, it's overstating. It's like, well, maybe there will be a shift back to appreciating some of the kind of work that he spent his entire life doing. And that wouldn't be a bad thing at all. Thanks for listening to the G2B Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. Visit G2Bpodcast.com for show notes, past episodes, and all the latest news. Join our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at G2B Podcast. And if you have any comments, questions, or even ideas for upcoming show topics, send them our way via contact at G2Bpodcast.com. And finally, thank you, Ray, for everything.